Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, From the Depths of Darkness to the Light of Success. I am your host, Chris Swick, and on this podcast, we talk about mental health, addictions, ADHD, eating disorders, and really anything anyone's afraid to talk about. We talk about it on the show and bring it to light, as I believe everyone's story is valuable. Doesn't matter what walk of life you come from, you're all welcome on my platform. If you can head over to the YouTube channel and hit that subscribe button, turn on the notifications. You can get all full video episodes over on the YouTube channel and hit me up over on Instagram at Depths of Darkside. Check out great insights on mental health and ADHD and just an insight into my daily life as well and clips from each episode. But with no further ado, I'd love to introduce you my next guest. It's been a long time in the making, but we're finally making it happen today. I got the founder of Same Here Global, over on Instagram is where I found him. He's friends with another former guest and he's become a friend of mine, Ryan Phillips. Thanks for to Ryan for introducing me to Eric Kusen. You want to take it away and let him know a little bit about you and we'll dive right in. Being introduced as a friend of Ryan's, I don't know if I if I want to be that associated. No, just kidding. I love Ryan. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me and appreciate that you've got a platform here. I'm sure we'll dive much deeper into it, but general Mac take is that I was a professional sports executive for 15 years. Mental health wasn't on my radar screen whatsoever until life threw me a curveball and decided that, guess what, Eric, this is going to (laughs) be the rest of your life and you can't get away from it. And obviously some people experience that you can't get away from it and it happens in their personal life. And it's something that they have to dive into and a tackle head on. In my particular case, it was, I was fortunate enough to find certain ways of healing, uh, certain things in our industry, let's call it that things we'll get into that needed changing. And I'm someone who likes to dive in and roll up my sleeve and fix things as best I can. I don't want that to come off as I have all the answers, but I, I definitely am an analytical person that looks at what needs changes and probably I'm opinionated maybe to a fault. And so diving in and saying, what is it in this industry that's not changing? What is it that we need to do better? And that's where I've spent the last four years and feel pretty confident I'm going to spend the rest of my life because when I worked in sports, it was like, this is the greatest job in the world. I've got the dream position. I wouldn't want to do anything else. You have a health scare the way that you do. And then you find out that a space like this, you're able to help people. And that's even a better feeling than working in professional sports. I can't imagine finding something that's more fulfilling than this. And what was it that you were doing as a sports executive before it even became a whole mental health thing for you with same here global? What was it you were doing? Yeah, I think I grew up like a lot of kids. I was an athlete, played every sport there was, right? And captain of teams and wanted to be the best teammate and competitive SOB. So I knew at a young age, I was tall, but but 6'4 is different than 6'8 when you're a basketball player. So I was tall, but not tall enough and athletic, but not athletic enough. I started doing internships in professional sports, even going back to high school. So though I played and walked on in college at Cornell University, I, I interned for the Long Island Surf, which was a USBL basketball team. Then when I went to college for IMG, International Management Group, and their sponsorship division, worked for the New York Jets in their Jets Fest, which is their fan interactive football amusement park, went to London to work for a British basketball team, the London Towers. And so the first position from a full-time perspective that I got was with the NBA league office coming right out of college. And I worked for a gentleman named Mark Tatum, who was now their deputy commissioner. So it was at the time when the league was still pretty large, but it was small enough where you were interacting with the big wigs and getting involved in a pretty deep level on the day-to-day operations of what was happening at the league office. And that propelled me to then opportunities working directly for teams, first helping to start up a WNBA team in Chicago, which was the first independently owned WNBA franchise outside of NBA ownership. Then over west even further to Phoenix, to the Suns, and oversaw their sales and service back to probably what most people in Canada are more excited about, the NHL, and was overseeing sales and service with New Jersey Devils and Lou Lamarillo in my office at the time and us making it to the Stanley Cup final in 2012. And then finally took this position down in Florida with this new ownership group That's was the reason I went down there was for the people. I liked the vision that they were carving out for changing the way in which Florida positioned themselves as a sports team and a sports market. And ultimately, that I think that was the right decision looking back on it now six years later, because you look at the direction that team is going in, 
I saw the investments they were making and look at the powerhouse that they have. Granted, you, you didn't get, get past the second round now, but that's a scary team that they put together. So I went down there as their chief revenue officer, one step away from my dream job of being a team president. And that's where shit started to hit the fan. So we could certainly start there, but hopefully that helps give a background on the sports. And you know, let's dive right into that then. So where did the shit hit the fan then after you're one step away from that dream job of being the president of the Florida Panthers, I'm going to presume is who you're talking about. Yeah. So I was six months into my tenure there. Things were going great. I'm interviewing, building a culture. They had gutted out a lot of the business operations. So they gave us the keys to build it from scratch and bring in new people, new management. And I just started noticing I was losing interest in things outside of the office didn't want to hang out with friends, didn't want to go to the gym, didn't have the energy to be social. And I think when we talk about this space of mental health, what happens is we justify what starts to go awry or what starts to fall off. We're like, oh, at least I'm still able to focus on the core of what I'm doing, my job. And that's how I justified it. Okay, I'll get in the office at 6.30 instead of 7 a.m. I'll leave at one in the morning instead of at midnight. I'll stay even longer because this is the one thing that's clicking for me. And that was certainly an excuse looking back because, okay, work's working, right? For lack of a better term, I'm going to keep going to the well on that. And I woke up one morning and it was like pushing myself out of quicksand to get out of bed. I remember walking to my closet. It was like I had cinder blocks on my feet. I open up the door in the closet and it feels like a bomb had gone off, even though everything was organized. And I couldn't make out whether I should wear a t-shirt or a button-down shirt or slacks versus jeans and I did what I think most people do when your brain starts to feel like it's falling apart on you as I started testing myself, I looked at a picture of my nieces, the two most important little people in the world to me, and I could remember their first names, but I couldn't remember their middle names. Like you think about how ridiculous that is to have these people who are front and center in your world and you can't remember their middle names. So you do, I did what an athlete does. I'm saying this, not trying to keep out people who are not in the athletic world, because I think everyone has this in their nature to grin and bear it in some way and clench your fists, clench your jaw and go, I'm going to make it through. So my thought process was put on whatever clothes you need to put on, get your butt into the office. And by the time you get into the office, okay, things will start to click again and you'll get back into the positive routine where it'll start to spiral in the right direction, even though right now things feel like they're spiraling out of control. And I got into the office that day and people who are older who know this game will know the reference, but my computer looked like light brights to me instead of nice, even email lines. When I use that game, when I go at the high schools and middle schools, they look at me like a, I have 10 heads. Cause I, I remember light bright, man. That thing was an awesome gift. Yeah, dude, it was amazing. But like you, there's all these colors coming at you. And so that's what it felt like staring at the screen. Yeah. And still that night. I had to give a presentation because what your role is as chief revenue officers, you're there to run the revenues, but also to be the frontward facing person for season ticket holders, corporate partners, TV rights holders to engage and to motivate and to rally people around the direction that the team is going in. And so I invited the reps earlier in that week to have their prospects come to a suite prospects for being season ticket holders. We're trying to build a fan base and okay, I'm going to give a rah-rah speech in front of 50 people in a suite to get them excited about the direction that the team is going. And now I'm pausing for a second in, in a normal situation. If I would do that with the devils or with the Suns, you talk about things like the investment of the ownership group and the new goalie that we have in place. And we just drafted Jonathan Huberdeau and Alexander Barkov and we're going in the right direction and the excitement that's going on in the marketplace. You, know, you ask Goldie, who's our play-by-play -play guy to come in and give his two cents. I'm sitting there waiting for this group to come in and my mind is blank. I had to write down on an index card. Hi, my name is Eric Houston. I'm the chief revenue officer of the Florida Panthers. It's great to meet you. And nothing came to my mind beyond that. So again, grin and bear, right? When this group comes in the room, uh, something is going to happen where it's going to click. It's going to snap into place. And I literally read off that index card in front of those 50 people. Fortunately, our team president was in the room, a guy named Matt Caldwell, who's still the team president there, still the same ownership group. And after reading, hi, my name is Eric Houston. I'm the chief revenue officer with the Florida Panthers. My brain shut down. And I just said, this is Matt. He'll take it from here. And I walked out. I've never quit anything in my life. We talk about the Simone Biles situation and how she was called a quitter. There's a difference between mental toughness and mental health that I didn't know and didn't understand at that time. 
but here I am my entire life, nerves, energy, anxiety, anything you want to call these things that happen to our nervous system, I always was able to push through. Just, okay, get the ball rolling and you'll eventually get through. And here was the first time in my life where my brain was like, sorry, buddy, you're done. Like you, you don't have it and you're going to walk out right now almost in an involuntary way. So I go back to my office and I'm fortunate that after sitting there for the next two periods, just staring off into space, not really paying attention to what was going on in the game, because that was not on my mind whatsoever. What was on my mind was my brain just doesn't feel like it's functioning. Vinny Viola, who was the owner of the team at the time, still the owner of that gentleman that I came down there for. And then a guy named Matt Caldwell, who's the team president. And again, still the team president. They came into my office after the game, and this is, for historical perspective, this is 2015. So if we don't think we're talking about this topic enough now, you can imagine what it was like back then, but they were still so supportive. It was great. Vinny, you know, West Point background, so military background, West Point grad, he looked me in the eyes and he said, we never leave a soldier out in the battlefield. Take as much time as you need, one month, two months, three months, come back hit the ground running. Let's do this. We like what's getting built here. And when I heard three months, I think what a lot of your listeners will relate to is at least here in the States, right? They pharmaceutical companies promote direct to consumer. So I didn't know if I had a brain tumor, I had an aneurysm, I had a traumatic brain injury from the time I was a athlete growing up and it was just manifesting now. I don't know why my brain feels like it's literally gone on shutdown mode and I can't put these sentences together, look at people in the eyes, have conversations. I couldn't even order from a menu and call up a restaurant. It was that bad. But I think when you're in that phase, you go to what you've been taught, which in the US, these commercials are 30 second commercials and a gray cloud with someone with a sad face, and it looks like they're carrying around a boulder, all of a sudden, 15 seconds into a 30-second commercial, you now see the clouds go away, the sky is blue, the birds are chirping, there's beautiful music, and the boulder's no longer there. So I'm not saying that I thought it would be that easy, but consider this. We grow up where we take antibiotics for strep throat, bronchitis, and pneumonia, and we're kids, and all of a sudden, two days later, we start to feel better. When your mental health goes south and you're feeling these things called lethargic, rundown, malaise, cognitive fog, lack of executive thought, that feels very similar to what it's like when you're sick. It's just you don't have the sore throat or the cough that goes along with it. So your thought process is, what is the drug that's going to help me that's going to make me feel better? Again, very much the thought process here in the US. So I leave everything down in Florida actually had, this is how dysfunctional I was, had to have my parents come down to Florida, hold my hand, walk me to the plane, get me on the plane, get me into the car and back. Yeah. So I go back to New York where it's supposed to be all these top doctors and I'm getting diagnosed with every alphabet soup of the DSM-5 of AD, OCD, PTSD, melancholic depression, anhedonic depression, and what it leads to after thinking, okay, who's not going to get better in three months? One of these pills is going to pop me out of it. I spent two and a half years laying in the bed, staring at the ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to podcasts, just absolutely gone from the world. And I'm tried on over 50 different psychotropic drug combinations. And when I share that number with people, it's an amazement, but it's the reality of if you're willing to try it, they're willing to give it to you. And I thought that was the only path. And I thought I'm working my butt off, even though I'm laying in bed, I'm sure most people can relate. You're running a marathon in your mind. That doesn't feel like it's just you're laying there resting. You feel like you're literally running for your life. Two and a half years of that, unfortunately, don't get better. I'm told to do TMS therapy, transcranial magnetic simulation, where they put a helmet on your head and shoot electromagnetic waves into your brain to try to wake up the neurons and get them firing through synapses again. I do 23 sessions of that 23 days in a row. And on the morning of the 24th, at about three in the morning, four in the morning, I remember staring at this bottle of pills on my counter in my bedroom because I didn't want to leave my bedroom that often. And I'm sitting on my hands, stopping myself because this thought is going through my mind, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle. Now, for everyone listening, I had never had a suicidal ideation before in my life. I'd never looked at a bottle of pills in that way before. A bottle of pills always seemed like something you take one of them a day and they make you feel better. How did my brain switch and all of a sudden look at that now as a weapon instead of something that helps me? I think another important piece to the conversation is 
I didn't have anything bad situationally that happened to me during that two and a half years. While it was misery, no one in my family passed away. My dog was healthy. I didn't have a bad relationship breakup. So you got to start asking the question, how does a thought like that arise? And get back to that. Not being able to fight that off on my own, it, for people who've experienced it, they'll know what I'm referring to here. It felt like a magnetic pull towards those pills that I couldn't stop myself from. That's why I was sitting on my hands. And so I told my parents, you got to take me somewhere because something's going to happen to me. I'm going to do something to myself without wanting to do it unless I get watched or I'm brought in somewhere. And so I go inpatient. I don't like mentioning the name of the hospital because then they don't take too kindly to it. But let's just say it was one of the top treatment facility centers in the Northeast. I go into the ER of the psych ward. I get transferred to an off-campus facility, which is supposed to be one of their top facilities. And... I meet with the attending psychiatrist and I hear two words that I think ultimately changed my life at the time in an awful way, but looking back on it, toward projecting me towards some of the best opportunities and work I've ever done. She looked at my chart. I'm looking at her top doctor plaques again. And she just says, Eric, you've tried everything there is. Your last resort is to do ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, or what I think us as laymen know as shock therapy from movies, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And the joke I can share now, though, it wasn't funny then, is you don't have friends to call up and go, hey, Chris, so when you were offered shock therapy, did you take it? And what was it like? Like, we're, we don't talk about that. And it's not as common of a practice because it's considered a last resort practice. But just hearing the term last resort from someone who's supposed to be an expert in this space at a place that's supposed to be a top facility you listen to what they say because you think you're on they're on life support here and this is the only way that your brain's going to be woken up in some way. So I do 12 sessions over five weeks inpatient. I'm the only one on my floor getting this ECT. Spare you the details of the misery of waking up after each one for an hour and not knowing my name or where I'm from or what state I'm in. And I leave the hospital after those five weeks feeling no better than I had the two and a half years prior, essentially thinking my life is over. So this is now middle of 2017, okay? So it's not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. My parents are both former educators. So where the story turns is they would go to these continuing edu education courses all the time. And so they went to this one course called Integrative Breathing Practices. And I didn't know what the term integrative meant that had never done a breathing practice before in my life. So I didn't think much of it. And... I, my mom runs back from the course that night, nine o'clock at night. I'll never forget looking at that digital clock in my room. It's nine on the dot. She's like, we met this Dr. Donna. She's a psychologist. She treats differently than all these other doctors you've been to. We don't understand the science. We can't explain it, but she'll explain it to you. Please go see her. Please go see her. So when you're told last resort, you're willing to try anything there is at this point. Okay. Whatever this integrative thing is, I'll go and I'll try it. And I sit on her couch three days later. And every appointment, again, something I think most people can relate to, every appointment I'd been to for the two and a half years prior, there was always three segments to the appointment. Segment one was, hey, Chris, nice to meet you. What are your symptoms? And you list your symptoms out. Okay, Chris, based on your symptoms, here's your diagnosis. And that's where all that alphabet soup of diagnoses I was given. Then based on your diagnosis, here's the medication that makes a balance out of that imbalance, right? So I'm expecting it to be somewhat like that. Maybe not exactly because they told me that she treats differently. I sit on the couch and she just goes, Eric, I'm not going to ask you more than one question this entire session for this next hour. I want you to sit on the couch and tell me who Eric is. Like from the beginning, if you needed to tell me who you are as a person, I want you to tell me the story of your life. And I want you to think about that like how different that is than, quote, traditional Freudian talk therapy, where it's like, Chris, how are things going with your podcast? Chris, did you get new glasses today? Like, we usually talk to each other in the specifics of what's happening in this moment. And even when you go for traditional Freudian talk therapy, it's tell me about the relationship with your mother. Let's go there. Here, she was like, I want to know you. You have the stage to just share. And I think when you're given that opportunity to define and describe who you are as a person, it's interesting what story you tell out loud because that's the story you've been telling in your head. And so the story there is I just, I'm the middle of three boys, sports craze family. Okay. Some of the earliest members from the time I'm eight years old. And then this just rolls out of me. So my older brother who is 12 breaks his femur bone in a football accident is put into a body cast for a year and homeschooled. 
heals from that and a month later gets diagnosed with ALL, a children's form of leukemia. So late 80s, early 90s, not the best prognosis, unfortunately, back then, but miracle. He goes into remission after five years. Everyone's celebrating. He's in a Jeep Wrangler with his friends on the way to a hockey game of all things. Open top, open back, no seatbelt in the back. Friend's car loses control because that's what happens with kids when they're driving a young age. He flies out of the back seat with no seatbelts, lands on his head on the parkway, cracks his head open in ICU, loses partial vision in his eye. Heals from that, goes to college, is feeling a pain in his knee. They do all these blood tests, comes back that is cancer's return from childhood. And now they have to give him a much stronger chemo regimen and the drugs are much stronger now a decade later. So for a year while he's in law school now making law review, which is share that because it's really impressive, he's getting zapped with the chemo and it's doing a great job on the number for his cancer cells, but it's also breaking down the healthy cells. That's why we see people lose their hair. In his case, we see his joints breaking down. And I eventually, I'm up at college at this point, I get a call from my father that my brother's developed 105 fever and they're taking him into the hospital. I should drive down and meet them. I remember getting a call from the social worker as I'm driving down, we need you to be prepared for the worst, right? Imagine getting that from a social worker you like you haven't even met before. And I get to the hospital and the neurologist is there and tells us that uh, his body's gone into septic shock from the chemo treatments and the organs are attacking themselves. Septic shock, he's fallen into a coma and the tubes are breathing for him, keeping him alive. And they don't know if, you know, how long they'll keep him alive for. And if it, if it does keep him alive, whether or not when he wakes, he'll have any brain activity. So that's ends up being a three month, unfortunately, saga. And miraculously, again, here's a good part of the story. He wakes full cognitive faculty about him. But unfortunately, his kidneys fail from the rigor of the septic shock. So he needs to go on dialysis. We all get tested to see who's the closest match. My father is, donates a kidney to him. That all ends, that that job at the league office that I was sharing with you, I got out of college. Okay, blank slate, get to put all this childhood stuff behind me, real world, excited about a new opportunity. Three of my close friends pass away back to back of misdiagnosed or undiagnosed heart conditions. One guy running on a treadmill, one guy walking with boxes up a flight of stairs to his new apartment. And so I share that background whenever I tell the story because of what the doctor, the doctor's reaction was here. She was telling me she wasn't going to interrupt me and she wasn't. And I've gotten through that part of the story. You probably in a lot more detail then. And she says, Oh my God, Eric, what else happened to you as a child that impacted your mental health that I need to know about? And I just shot back to her and I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I've for the last two and a half years been laying in a bed with a chemical imbalance related to all these letters that have been given to me. And I've been finding the medication to balance out the imbalance. What the hell does that have to do with a story about who I am as a person that I just told you about between the ages of eight and 22? Now, looking back on that's a very ignorant comment. But I tell that story that way because I think that's how the majority of our society still thinks about mental health. You either have it or you don't. And so she gave me an analogy that hopefully sports people will relate to. But I think anyone who's watched the game on TV can relate. She said, Eric, if you were entertaining clients and you had a front row seat at an NBA basketball game and these seven foot athletes were running up and down the court and sweating and the sweat was flying off them and hit you as they came close to the sideline or they dove for a loose ball and they landed in your lap. You'd have a soiled suit that night. You'd leave after three hours of the game, maybe a little bit longer to get your work done, go home, take a shower, put your suit away for the dry cleaner, shower the next morning, put on a nice new suit, and you would have no recollection. Anyone would really know that you were sweat on the night before. You still had a front row seat with what you just shared to me, but the front row seat wasn't an NBA basketball game. It was the game of life. And the game of life was represented by your brother in a muddy wrestling ring and your friends in a muddy wrestling ring. And every move your brother made to stay alive, every move your friends made to stay alive, the mud was splattering and hitting you in that front row seat, splattering and hitting you. And the biggest difference between this game and the basketball game, aside from what I just shared, is you didn't just sit in that seat for three hours. You didn't sit in it for three days, three weeks, three months, three years, 30 years. For 35 years, you've been sitting in that front row seat. Your greatest strength, which is that you were able to compartmentalize and focus on things that you loved, playing sports and then working in professional sports, became, unfortunately, your biggest enemy 
because you were so focused on those things, you didn't notice the mud that was caking up and building. Eventually, it got so heavy that not only from the t- you trying to stand up, you literally just sitting in that chair watching that game take place, you literally fell over because of how heavy that mud got. My reaction right then was, if that's what mental health is, I'm 35. If all it takes is watching things happen to other people in our lives from a front row seat because we care about them, okay, take me out of the equation. Take your average 15-year-old. Watching your parents have fights and go through a divorce. Watching your parents lose their job and potentially lose the house. Watching your two best friends go through a friendship breakup and be devastated because they're no longer friends with that other person or go through a relationship breakup and be devastated because it's the first relationship they ever had where they love someone or watching your friend deal with bullying on the schoolyard or verbal abuse from an adult or cyberbullying online or dealing with the sickness of a loved one at a young age or the death of a loved one at a young age. I don't know a 15-year-old who hasn't been through one summer many of those things, let alone a 35-year-old, 55-year-old, or 85-year-old. If that's what mental health is, that <clears throat> everyone's mental health has been impacted. But that's not the story that our society hears. Because if it was dummy over here sitting in the couch would not have been doing stadium stairs and bench presses to help my coach. It would have been working on my brain (laughs) to try to get it to a better place. And she pauses me because you can tell I get passionate about this. She's like, Eric, you're right. Like our society doesn't look at it that way. Let's focus on you for a second. Like I want to get help you heal. Then you could start to think about how you help others heal. I want to send you to this weekend breathing course. So I show up three days later to an abandoned karate studio that this nonprofit organization called the Art of Living rented out. And I was the only male, only one under 40 and only one born in the U.S. So it was me and eight Indian women and nine yoga mats. Okay, I'm a complete fish out of water, but I love asking questions and I love wanting to find out why these things work. And this is obviously an oversimplification, but. I wanted a reason to buy into why after I just tried 50 different drugs and all these sci-fi treatments that didn't help me, how the hell is breathing, which I already do every single day, going to make me feel better? And I start to learn about things like, what do you do when a volatile situation is coming up? You tense up. You change the way you breathe. Oh my God, that situation is scaring me. Oh no, that might happen. If you're changing the way you're breathing, aren't you changing the structures in your body and how they flow and connect with one another? Your vagus nerve starts to tense more. Your cells start to become inflamed. Take just even the vagus nerve in and of itself, this large nerve with two branches that connects from our brainstem down into our stomach and then branches out to the rest of the body through all the organs. If you're breathing differently because someone just got into an accident, oh my God, something might happen to someone. Guess what? Eventually, it's going to change consistency of those structures. It's going to tighten them up or loosen them up. And in my case, these tightened vagus nerves, how are you going to be able to healthily send messages between in your brain and your body so that your body and your brain know what to do and how to work in sync with one another? So once I bought into doing these breathing practices and giving my vagus nerve this ability to be more flexible, I was able to say, okay, there's something to this. Even though I'm not going to feel relief right away, let me stick with it. 30 days in, after bringing the practice home with me, I remember waking up one morning and it was literally like to this day, because I haven't had kids yet, the best day of my life, because I woke up looking at a controller going, holy shit, I want to turn the TV on. And I looked at the kitchen and I go, I want to have scrambled eggs for breakfast. This is an amazing thing that I actually care about something. And that became now building into what I do now. That was the impetus for, okay, I was told last resort. Now, all of a sudden, I started healing through this other thing, and I'm not back to where I'm I'm good yet. You and I met on Instagram at this time. I didn't have Instagram. I didn't have Twitter. I'm not one of those people who shares my life online. I had one tool in social media, and that was LinkedIn. And that was only because my mentors had told me in the sports world, That's where you stay connected with people in the professional world. So the story I just shared with you, believe it or not, in much greater detail, I wrote that story up. It takes 35 minutes to read it. It's on our website, the original post, if anyone wants to see it. I put it on LinkedIn, which is not the place to share those type of personal things. Most people, when it's something that long, they do it through video and not through written. And I'm not Edgar Allan Poe by any means. So (laughs) put it up there. 
And in three days, it gets shared over 150,000 times. And I have over 400 calls coming in from as far as China. And if there was an epiphany number two, other than the last resort comment, epiphany number two was the calls that I was getting back to people on. I got back to 315 of the 400 people picked up the phone and we had a conversation over the next many weeks. There wasn't a, it sounds like hyperbole. There wasn't a single person who led with, Eric, you had PTSD ultimately. I have bipolar disorder. Can we talk about the similarities or differences? Or I have anxiety. Here's how it differs from your PTSD. Instead, everyone was sharing a lived experience story. I lost a child to SIDS and I've never been the same. Eric, I have a knot in my stomach from the day I broke up with my college boyfriend. That was 10 years ago. I'm married now. I have two beautiful kids, but I don't know why that knot won't go out of my stomach. I'm not even with that guy anymore. And I'm not a therapist, so I'm just fielding all these calls. And my the, what my realization, right? You talk about like Malcolm Gladwell and the 10,000 hours. This wasn't 10,000 hours, but this was trial by fire of call after call of what's the common theme here. And the common theme was, what ties a human condition together is not mental illness, is not disorder, is not labels. It's challenging life events that every single one of us go through. It happens at different points in our lives at different levels. We can't measure those levels. So why are we comparing them? That's the thread that we need to get out there. The challenges we all face and how it starts to impact us. I, I went, I did what I did at the NBA. I was charged with looking at websites when I was first in the, the early on, they give you the administrative roles, look at the different team websites and compare them. And what is different between Orlando magic versus the Milwaukee bucks and help them share what one is doing that the other one can do better. I went to all the mental health nonprofits in our country, NAMI, Mental Health America, Bring Change to Mind, Active Mind, Shed Foundation. These are the largest in, in, in our country in the world for that matter. And I said, okay, I just experienced this mental health thing in this way where I noticed it, common thread being all of us facing challenges, everyone in it, saying that comment to my doctor about how everyone's impacted. Which one of these sites are explaining that way so that I've got sports context, I'll happily pass off my sports context to who's ever talking about it the right way. I'll go off and do that sports thing I did <laughs> for 15 years of my career. I'll have done my debt to society and I'll be back in the industry that I love. And what I noticed on all these websites is there was consistency, which you would think would be a good thing in mental health. We're trying to get out a consistent message. The problem yeah, but is consistency in probably many wrong ways, though. <laughs> nailed it. So what were the consistencies? And some of these you may agree with, some of them you may not, but worth discussing. So three things in particular I saw. Okay. First, I think you will agree with from reading your stuff. First is they all start with the statistic one in five people are mentally ill. The second you draw that line in the sand of it's one in five, now all of a sudden you're telling 80 plus percent of society you're what? You're not in this mentally ill group, so what category are you in? And when I ask a group of people who are there either voluntarily or are mandated to be there at a school or an office, the hands go up and it's healthy, fine, normal, and okay. Healthy, fine, normal, and okay. So we've created with the one in five stat. Labels. Yes. One in five ill people, four in five healthy people, meaning mental health has become binary. You're either on one side of the line or you're on the other side of the line. And you don't have to look much further than politics and religion. And when you point fingers and you say, you're this way, you're that way, guess what? That doesn't bring people together. It separates them more. That was issue number one. Issue number two, and here's the one that, you know, because I saw what you wrote, you said, I fight mental health stigma. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge that a little bit in a collaborative way. All the campaigns that I saw on the websites were an action word followed by stigma. So it started with NAMI with stop the stigma, but then it became stop the stigma, break the stigma, race the stigma. Baseball just started strike out the stigma. Football now has kicked the stigma. If we're going to use stigma and we're going to put an action word in front of it, the term stigma means that there's human beings, not this microphone I'm talking into, not the computer I'm looking at. Human beings are forming unfair opinions and judgments about other human beings. If you and I who are advocates and we start the Eric and Chris organization and our rallying cry is stop the stigma, break the stigma, that's a great rallying cry for you and I in this group of one in five people that we believe that we're protective of and that we're helping. It's probably the worst rallying cry possible for the other four and five people who don't understand this topic because all of a sudden they're going, whoa, 
because that action word becomes a command. When you hear stop and break, think about what happens with, you mentioned your father. When you tell your child, stop throwing that toy, the first thing they do is they pick up the toy and they throw it at you, right? They do the opposite. (laughs) So if we're trying to welcome people in, stop, stop and break and kick the stigma, you now have, think of this, always think in sports terms, okay, here's the group of thousand people who are coming to the mental health, which then in their mind means the mental illness awareness night. You could also start, maybe start educating yourself. Exactly. Exactly. I love it. And creating commonality through the challenges we all face. Okay. Third and final thing I noticed on the websites, although there's many other things, but in terms of the main things, they were all using celebrities. This is before the Simone Biles and the Naomi Osaka era. I, and I find the, and most the- places, though, anything, like whether it's a product that's getting launched, whether it's a magazine, a new TV show, or a movie, or mental health things like we're talking about addictions they all use these big celebrities have they actually really gone through it have they actually really done the educating themselves not only them the big bucks not only that especially in this space so it started before they even had the endorsements first when they just were getting the news leaked it was like on these websites you're not alone britney spears is part of the one in five group she's got depression Lindsay lohan is part of the one in five group she's got anxiety and then they, before the celebrities got involved, those websites would leak, link to an Us Weekly or People magazine article. And it was like, Britney Spears has depression, shaves her head. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety, dresses like a hot mess. Charlie Sheen has addiction, looks like a skeleton when he leaves his house in the morning from doing coke all the time. You add those three things up, and I'll get back to the celebrity thing. It's for one in five people. Let's stop stigmatizing that poor group of one in five people. And if you want to know if you're in the group of one in five, do you run off a basketball court and panic attacks like Kevin Love? And do you say crazy things about your family like Kanye West? And do you shave your head like Britney Spears? That's why we still are divided. Because now let's take it to the celebrity piece. What are celebrities motivated by? Money, okay? And fame. What gets them money and fame in this space? Raising their hand and saying they have a label, okay? So I'm Kevin Love. I had anxiety and a panic attack. I ran off the basketball court. Use better help. I'm Michael Phelps. I had depression and suicidal thoughts when I was Olympian. Use talk space. If you notice, none of that is the story. None of that is what you're doing on your podcast here, which is telling the X's and O's of how someone got there. It's all the label and saying, I'm a champion for the label. Now use this because this fixes you. What does that do? Go back to those three things on the website. It just further perpetuates those same three things that are being talked about on the website. So now all of a sudden, we're like, oh, we're patting ourselves on the back as a society. Oh, look at all these celebrities who are coming out and sharing. Carson Daly has anxiety. When we lead with the labels and that's all we hear and we don't lead with vulnerability and storytelling, all we're doing is saying, oh, okay, that's another poor person that lives in that one and five group. We're not bridging the gap between five and five mental health on a continuum. It impacts all of us. It affects our central nervous system. There's not a person on this planet who doesn't go through it. So that was the impetus behind forming same here, same here being an American sign language sign. You and I, Chris, we're the same. And we're not the same because you have depression and I have PTSD or you have anxiety and I have OCD. We're the same because we're human beings and human beings all go through challenging life events that impact our mental health. And if that's the message, there's no need to say stop or stomp or break the stigma because the stigma is stomped or broken based on the similarities of what we share. You could get an entire room to feel together and a part of things. And I'll shut up because I know I've talked a lot a little bit and get your reaction to this. The, you being up in Canada, the first guy that I thought to get involved with this when that idea came to my mind was Theo Fleury. And the reason was Theo, I saw him sharing. He wasn't sharing, I'm Theo Fleury with PTSD. It's when you have this five symptoms of this list of 20 for two weeks or more. He was saying, I'm Theo Fleury, and at age 16, I was raped over 150 times by my male hockey coach. He used me because I was trying to get to the NHL, and he used that power dynamic over me. That traumatized me. My father was an addicted gambler, and I came home every day afraid that we were going to lose the house because of what he was betting. My mother was very into religion and told me that if I didn't do things a certain way, I wasn't going to have salvation, and I was going to hell. He shared the stuff. He shared what got us to a place. And to me, that's the narrative that needs to get out there. And it doesn't matter if it's Theo's sexual abuse, 
doesn't matter if it's Chamiqua Holtz Claw from the WNBA growing up in a difficult neighborhood. It doesn't matter if it's Keith Bullock's growing up as a foster child. All of us go through traumatic things in our lives. That's the common thread. We just need to keep telling the stories that tie us together that make it five and five. And if we don't do that and we focus on labels and disorders and tell people to stop stigmatizing us poor group of sick people, we never get anywhere. We're a dog chasing our tail. I love that you say that. It's so true. And when Theo came out, that was what helped me. It took me a while to come out about what happened to me as a child as well. And that was the only way I was going to break free from my addiction to drugs was sharing what had gone on with me as a child, openly coming out about it, not first publicly, but to people that I trusted. I had to learn to build that trust with others before I could share openly about it. And that's where the chain got broken for me three years ago. I love that you said the word breaking free, right? Because what's the name of Theo's foundation, the Breaking Free Foundation? Exactly. Theo Fleury has enough of a name that he could have named the organization the Theo Fleury Foundation. He didn't. He called it the Breaking Free Foundation because he knew that was an inspirational message to people based on what you've lived through. Here's how you break through it. Back to the celebrity thing, Chris. How many celebrities have foundations? I won't mention them because people can look them up and I don't want to call individuals out. How many celebrities have mental health foundations where the mental health foundation is named after themselves? Go back yeah, to exactly. motives. We, we could go know? to lots of them. I could name off names, but we don't need to because we could have a pissing match all day long. <laughs> yep. It's And does that help the conversation that they're opening up or does that hurt the conversation? My opinion is off the heels of what society misunderstands. They're about in it for topic. themselves, in my opinion. Yes. At that point, course. just because now they have a name on their foundation. Why don't you name it something that's going to help others, not yes. just help grow your own name sort of thing. And I love that you point that out about Theo because he's so selfless now. We're all selfish people, you know, especially in addiction and stuff like that. We're we're very selfish people. And to this day, I still catch myself of how selfish I can be. Even the most benevolent, like I get on myself. If you see, I know we, we connected recently, but some of my earlier posts of what I struggled with was when I got in this space and I was helping people I questioned, and I know this is maybe being overly analytical to a fault, but I questioned, okay, I'm helping people, but I'm getting something out of helping people. I like it for myself. Is that selfish in and of itself? And there's something to be said for that. Okay, like you're not like really being selfless would be picking up that bag of manure that's disgusting and no one knowing that you're doing it just because you're trying to clean up the street for other people. In this space, you get the hugs from other people. You get the thank yous from other people. You get the you saved my life from other people. It's incredibly rewarding. So a little bit to your point, we all have ego. And for anyone who's in this space, I love the people who go on and they have their pages of 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 followers. And they're like, I don't care if my name is out there. I don't care. That's a little bit of bullshit. There's a piece of you that cares or else you wouldn't do this. Now, there's levels of that. Look at the name of your initiative with Dark Side and Darkness. You're doing it because you're putting a message out there to help people. You like that your name's behind it because you want, as human beings, we want purpose. We should. So anyway, where I came to the conclusion of is that selfish if you can find your purpose in something that is giving to others then it's okay to be a little bit selfish because in finding that purpose for yourself, it's it's a give back. So that, and that's what a lot of people wrote me. They're like, Eric, be as selfish as you need to be with how you're doing it. Because as long as it's making the world a better place, then fine. We need a lot of selfish people like that. I love that you say that, man. Leads me into my next question. Why is it important to have the right people on your team to accomplish your dream? We could talk about this in the micro sense in this initiative or in the macro sense of team building in general. One of the hardest things working in professional sports was it was such a hyper competitive industry. You didn't get to choose who you worked with unless you were eventually a team president. You literally were able to gut out of the group and build it from scratch, which is what we were starting to get to do in Florida. So you're working with a lot of strong type A personalities who are all gunning for each other's positions, your frenemies in a way, <laughs> because <laughs> you're, you want that other person to exceed, but hey, am I going to get the credit because I'm going to the next role and, and who's going to get that next opportunity first? And it's sad. That's what corporate America has turned into and a lot of the way in which you know for-profit businesses are set up. Looked at it when I started building this organization as I need people who are mission-driven first and we're all going to have different skill sets. 
I'm the worst with finances. I don't like looking at spreadsheets. And that's that. And by the way, that's a skill that I can build. It's not something that I can't learn. It's that I'm just not naturally good at it. I'm better at relationship building. Okay, who's the finance person that I can bring in that fills that gap, but at the same time is mission driven and from a selfless standpoint, all of us together in the different roles that we play our main goal is our main goal is our main goal, which in our case is to normalize society's perception of mental health and make it part of our everyday conversation. As long as our eyes on that prize, it's okay for us to each color outside of the lines a little bit for each of us to make a little bit of mistakes. When we get on conference calls or when we're on a group text message or there are no wrong ideas. There are no slapping people on the wrist. If someone makes a mistake, okay, you lick the wound and you go on to the next one. But if you have people who it's not about me and it's not about money first and it's about mission and you're driven by the same mission and it's funny looking back on my career because I didn't know that I necessarily had this type of perspective when I was growing up in sports. But I remember being at the Suns and saying to my staff, what's the story we want to tell together as a group? Now, that was a for profit venture. And the story was, okay, the Phoenix Suns had this five year sellout streak. We're the group sales staff. And we're responsible now that all these season ticket holders drop because the team's not as good anymore. We want to be able to tell the story that we picked up the slack and we were able to fill the remaining seats to keep that sellout streak alive and keep it going for multiple years. Can I safely assume it was when Steve Nash was there? Yeah, dude. It was so it was right in the heart to give people some thought to like looking at the rest of sports right now. Steve Nash is the coach of the Nets was our point guard, Amari Stoudemire, who was on his staff with the Nets, was our power forward and just an amazing guy. It was the era when we brought in Shaquille O'Neal. So when we had that down period, we brought in Shaquille. We had Jason Richardson. Our GM was Steve Kerr. And Who's now with Steve Golden Kerr, State. <laughs> now the coach of Golden State, right? Our head coach went from Mike D'Antoni, who, by the way, was an assistant on Steve Nash's squad now with the Nets. So he was a head coach at the time. And then it became a guy, Alvin Gentry, who's also had a long career in the NBA. So yeah, it went from this period where like Amari, there's a guy named Joe Johnson and Nash were dominating. Then they took a little bit of a dip because this guy who was good named Kobe Bryant and this other guy who was good named Tim Duncan were dominating in the Western Conference. So we took a little bit of a dip and we needed a way. We were selling out all these in a row. And then I got hired to be the group sales guy to be like, okay, where's your army of people that you're going to put together to fill these remaining seats so we keep that sellout streak alive? So anyway, that the point I'm sharing is when you have a group of people that there's a shared goal and it's not based on ego alone. We mentioned that ego is part of it, but it's based on the shared goal is the most important thing. And we're all pushing towards that shared goal. Magic can happen. And I feel so fortunate that the people we've got involved in this initiative from doctors to reporters to the celebrities and the athletes, I, there's a reason why I'm not working with some of the biggest celebrities in this space, even though we have access to them. It's because to your point, they're about building their brand and they're about building the coffers of stacks of cash that they have. I want people who are like, Eric, you need me at a school and the school only has this amount of money or they have no money. Okay. You'll get me next time. Let's go out there and let's make an impact and really change those kids' lives. I love that. We got to have people that want to do it, not for the money, not for the fame because they want to help someone. And that's why I created this show was to help others. I look for nothing in return. People always ask me, why don't you monetize the show? You could do this. You could do that. There's other ways to monetize. I'm helping out behind the scenes. I've learned how to edit people's shows. Those types of things. You know, bring a passive income in for myself. I don't care about bringing in money for this exact show. It's not all about that. It's about helping, whether it's one person or two people. Or as you, for your sake, with Same Here Global, you're starting to help hundreds of thousands of people with the following you've gathered and stuff like that. Clearly, your message is getting out there. And you're not doing it for a profit either. And as you see, I'm not saying you're not like maybe you're potentially bringing money in on the back and doing other things. No, here, look, I started as a nonprofit purposely because I didn't ever want to take early on venture capital money to get this. Look, you take money if you're mission driven because it helps you get your message out wider. Okay. My thought was I've got connections in sports on the team side and the player side 
that can help me propel this without money. That was first. If it's going to be a real message, I don't want to take venture money early on because then people are going to be like, what are you trying to do to turn this into a profit from day one? Number three is what you have on your hat with success, right? Is you're finding it when you say that people now come to you to edit. When you do something you love to help other people start to see what your skill sets are and success finds you. <laughs> the, the monetary piece works itself out. And I don't want to be utopian and say, it's so easy. Yeah, just put your nose to the ground and work hard and eventually it does. But if you're resourceful, right? Okay, you're doing a podcast, but to your point, there's video editing, there's audio editing, there's marketing, there's promotion, there's people see that you're building a brand. Hey, Chris, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? Sure. I'd love to be able to compensate you for doing that. So you can build something where it's well-meaning and it's mission-driven, and then the tangential pieces of that are that success come from that. I don't think anyone should apologize that success comes from something when your motives are pure at the beginning. And it's even okay if on your roadmap is to say, I'd love to do this mission-driven only with not even caring about a dollar for five years because that's the runway that I think I have, but I'd like to see it tangentially be able to create some kind of passive revenue or income after five years. Again, that's what planning is. That's what life is. But if your North Star is dollars in a space like this, it comes off that way. People can read it. And number two, you don't have a genuine message. And I'll give a very direct example of that. And people might hate me for bringing up, don't bring up people. So I'll bring up a company in this particular case. There's a gentleman named Andy Pudicombe who started Headspace. I think it's a phenomenal idea as a starting point. Let's teach the world how to meditate. Let's normalize meditation. All of a sudden, venture money came in. How do we grow this thing wider? How do we make this the unicorn monster of an app? And now you look at the ads that they put out and it says things like get 10% happier in 10 days guaranteed. That's a sales message to convince the depressed people who are this thing called sad, we've got the fix for you. How is that any better than what the pharmaceutical companies are doing? It's not. And no. so I'm always going to stick to, even when we take money, when and if that does happen, and when we get wider and as we grow, I'm only going to do it with people who are willing to say, okay, Eric, you've proven in schools and in offices that this message resonates with people in an organic way. Here's backing for you to get that message out there wider. And guess what? If I can't find someone who will back me in that way, I'd rather grow slowly or organically and continue with the right message than change my message and say, it's the one in five people you got. Let's keep traumatizing that group and tell them that they need you. I'm not going to go down that path. I love that you say that, man. Growing organically, and that's what this show's been all about. I'm not looking for sponsors. I, I, maybe I could go get sponsors. It'd be nice. But I, it's not on the top of my list to go do that either, you know, to push it out further and further. I love how organically it is. I love the group, the connections I've made far and wide, big and small. It doesn't matter. We're all in this together, being a voice for the voiceless. And it's nice just to have these conversations, man to man, woman to woman, whatever it is in this case, talking about the LGBTQ community recently, everything. You're all welcome on this platform. And that's what I like to do, man. Just bringing it together as a community. It's not just all about mental health. And but addiction. the problem is social media hates that. So they do. They, and that's know. okay. They can hate it all they want. Yeah. But they, and that's what makes it hard and I want to encourage anyone who's got a platform of two people or 200 people or 2,000 people is that you, you, the concept of communal group healing is the antithesis of what they promote because they promote division, they promote isolation, and what that does is, one, it keeps people coming to the site because when you're divided, you get angry, and that's what keeps you coming back to read what other people are writing about. When you feel isolated, you feel like you need what their advertisers are selling. And so their advertisers like that. And when we get together and we go, oh, Chris, this is fun to bring a lot of people together. This makes me feel better for the rest of the day. And by the way, this costs me nothing to do that. That doesn't work in a machine <laughs> that's looking to generate a ton of money, right? Off of people's eyeballs and people's purchases. My, my rallying cry to people is there's a lot more of, quote, us, the well-meaning people than there are them, the people who are just vultures, Use your two or 200 or 2,000 or 20,000 person platform to talk about community healing, getting together natural ways of us 
being able to find comfort in one another because a lot of armies of those people it, they can't eliminate that <laughs> when it's that many it gets eliminated because people get discouraged that my group of 200 is not becoming 4000 overnight concentrate on your 200 and help those 200 people I love it. Yeah, it's not all about the numbers. I love that you say that. It's a focus on the people that you already have in front of you instead of trying to build this huge empire. Focus on those people that are in front of you and you can learn stuff with, from one another. You can maybe earn a passive income. Maybe someone wants to start a podcast Hey, or those types of things like you're talking about. Focus on the people that are in front of you, not worried about growing to millions and millions of people. It's not all about the numbers, people. It's about focusing on those people that are already there for you, supporting you. You nailed it. So what? Well, before we go, I got one last question, though, man. Yeah. Where do you lack discipline in your life, Eric? Organization. So I'm one of those people. Hey, I'm going to cut you off there one second, and I'm going to break it down. Now. What, getting a hold of Eric was easy, but he does have an assistant. Because he's outright admitted to me in messages, yeah. private messages, that he isn't organized. I'm the same way, man. If I <laughs> look, I know my weaknesses, and yeah. I, I'm, the reason I'm looking to the left as I'm talking is I see my apartment, and wherever I'm at in my head with the with clutter, I can start to see it developing in my apartment, and so it's a physical manifestation of what's going on inside. And I think my lack of organization skills is because I multitask. And I like to do a lot of things at once and I busy myself with a bunch of different things, which by the way, is probably a trauma response to keep myself away from dealing with my stuff. But I'm learning that about myself and I'm on a healing journey. And I think we all are on healing journeys our entire life. But yeah, I can't sit there and just plot out and plan. And if I'm going to dinner that night, I pick where I'm going to dinner 20 minutes before I go. I don't, I don't, I don't look into all these different restaurants and I, when I'm going on vacation, I don't think to like all the different spots I'm going to visit. Oh yeah, I'll be there. We'll make fun out of there. Yeah. And I think you don't need to be down on yourself that you're, you have that fault. You just need to recognize that in yourself and say, okay, where is the strength that complements that? And, or who else in my family using the vacation as an example, is there someone else who is a better planner? okay, I'll let them do the sightseeing planning and I'll do the planning on where do we lay in our butt and get some sun and hang out. And you work off each other that way. I love that. Yeah, no, organization has never been one of my traits either, especially with my ADHD. So I just, and I'm in sales too, it's my full-time job. And, yeah. and trust me, organizing my day can be chaotic or when I forget to put an appointment and someone's coming to see me and they show up like, Oh, oh yeah, I did talk to you three days ago and you did tell me you're coming in, but I forgot or double booking myself. But yeah, no, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day today, man, to come on the show and share some of your insights, share some about how Same Here started, share where your story began and share your raw truths of really why what started when you were at the Florida Panthers started happening was because stuff that had happened 25 years before that. So I appreciate you coming on the show and having these chats, man. I believe more men need to have these chats, men to men. It's And just anyone in general, having these chats really helps one another. So thanks again, Eric, for coming on the show. Before we go, though, where can everyone find you? on? So I know you're not on social media too often, but find your organization if they want to check it out, the websites, those types of things. Where can they go? Yeah, thank you for giving me that opportunity. Our website is samehereglobal.org. So S-A-M-E-H-E-R-E global.org. The social handles are at samehere and underscore global. So that's Instagram and Twitter. And find me on the place where I do hang out sometimes. If you want to send me a direct message, it's LinkedIn. So just Eric Cusin, K-U-S-I-N. Last thing I'll share is just because you mentioned Theo. So Theo and then a gentleman named Darren Ravel. Theo's been have, on my show too, way back. If you want to listen to that episode, anyone? Yes, he, he's a great listen. And even if you've heard it's his a pain story in the before, ass to get a hold of though, but that's okay. I made it yeah, happen. Yeah, he's not <laughs> talk about organization, right? That's why he has an assistant. <laughs> exactly. Who's and then she's still in roping him in as a difficult time. But yeah, um, she's told me, but that's okay. Yeah. Theo's listen, that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> he knows. Don, Don, Don is Don. Don manages best best anyone can. But we have a podcast called "We're All a Little Crazy," and it's on all the major podcast platforms. Season two will be coming out in the next month or so, and it's with Darren Ravel, the sports reporter. And the angle of it is looking at current event topics. So this is amazing what we're doing here, which is storytelling. The angle that we take it from is 
wow, we just had a mass shooting. Let's actually address that. What does that mean in the mental health community? Wow, Simone Biles, quote, pulled out of the Olympics in the middle of the team competition. What does that mean? It doesn't mean she's selfish and that she's not a team player or let's get the opinion of an Olympian. <laughs> let's talk about the difference between mental health and mental toughness. So trying to take those current event stories and really dive deeper into the what is happening so that we, to your point about education, we can educate people. So any of those places would love to see people. And we have an app. I'll, I'll share that one, one, one last thing is the app in the app stores is called Same Here Scale. It allows you to track how you're feeling, your emotions, the reasons why you're feeling certain ways and the exercises you're doing. If we don't keep track of what we're doing, how are we ever going to get better? We can't. So as much as I'm not an organized person, this app keeps me in a place where I can keep my eye on what are my routines? How am I, how are my feelings changing? What can I do about feeling better? Thank you again, man. And any take I could take away from the show is share your raw truths, get vulnerable. Being vulnerable to me adds more confidence to me as well, because I was never a confident person. But if you don't speak what's on your mind or tell people your feelings, you'll never become more confident. So take care, everyone. And thanks again to Eric for coming on the show today to share his story. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me, bud.